It was a bit of a busy week this last week, so what I was doing, even though I don't like it and I should have known better, was I was, first of all, pulling a lot and adapting a lot from a message that I actually preached at Janice Woolbright's memorial service because we happened to be in the same text. But when I finally came to a time to, to a sort of an end on that message on Friday, I was certainly feel like, feeling like that the Lord did not want to share all of that from that passage, but I feel like a lot of the passages in scripture are worthy in looking for all sorts of treasure. You can come back to it again and find that there's still a lot of ground to dig. And I feel like the Lord said, hey, I want you to dig somewhere else. So Friday morning, I I just printed off verses 9, 10, and 11 of Philippians 3, which is where we're at. Been my desired text to study. And then I, I found immediately a connection that I first skipped over. Phrases or words that were in this passage, but I was too concerned because of my theology of brain about the theological truths that I know Paul is, 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 is addressing, and we will bring some of that out. But Paul is, is speaking about being found in him, and then later in Christ, faith in Christ, verse 9, and then in verse 10 Paul says he wants to know Christ, then he also says he wants to be conformed to him. And those phrases of Paul's desired relationship to Christ is what spoke to me. So, why don't you you stand in honor of hearing the word of the Lord if you're able to stand. And let's see if your ears tingle like mine did. And we'll back up to verse 7 for some context, but verses 9 through 11 will be our uh, area of study today. So we back up to verse 7, which says, But whatever was gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now the verses will study and be found in him, not having my own righteousness from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to Him in His death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty matters that could be my perception, but I just wonder if even Christians today want us to distill that down into something we can understand more easily. And in doing so, lack comprehension and all of its beauty. Help us to be willing to swim around in tough concepts, wordy words. Help us to desire you the way Paul desires you in this passage. Father, you brought us all here for a reason, to hear these words for a reason. Holy Spirit, you are more than capable of translating these words that you inspired Paul to write into faith building into our lives. Lord Jesus, be exalted in all that we say and do. 
and build us up in the faith. Why don't you say the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Many seem to miss the the centrality of something in who we are as Christians. In fact, I, I, I didn't know why, but sometimes I've struggled, not seriously or, or not with great passion or conviction, but I nevertheless struggled with some people who would refer to their faith. Or when they say, I go to church, maybe I struggle more vividly and I might have a more desire to something to say about it when someone stresses, yes, I'm spiritual. What's bothersome to me about these things? My faith. I go to church. I'm spiritual. It's lacking bite. It's lacking core. It's lacking something substantial. I don't know if the disciples, namely Paul, would say, My faith made me crisscross the Mediterranean and plant churches. I don't know if Paul would say, I suffered beatings and stonings and imprisonments and shipwrecks because I go to church. I can't hear Paul saying, I am enduring prison because I'm spiritual. I experienced this this ambiguity too when I was younger. Uh, For me, I just think of it as a process of growing, as a as a kid, I went to church because that's what my parents did. I had a Bible, and I read it here and there because I figured that's what good people do. I heard somewhere it was good for me. I went to vacation Bible school. I went to church camp. Even as a teenager, heading into my, my, year, my senior year of high school, finalizing my calling to preach, here was the impetus. Here was the momentum. I knew I didn't know a lot of things. Well, as a teenager, I probably thought I knew everything. But I knew I didn't know a lot of things. But what I did know is that I wouldn't be safe or I wouldn't feel fulfilled in my life's work if it wasn't dedicated to ministry inside the church. That was the the main impetus. See, See, come high school, I had really begun to see two worlds. There was a world outside of church and outside of my home where I was depressed a lot. I was tasting it, and I was finding it very much wanting. It was gross. Uh, I saw a lot of bad things, people making bad decisions, where I was in, you know, school going to uh, uh, drug abuse resistance education, and I was like, I was there. How come you? I mean, didn't you hear what I heard? Why are you doing these things? But then I knew another world, primarily on Sundays, where people loved each other. And my family was bigger than my blood relatives. I felt warm inside and the atmosphere was warm and friendly inside the confines of the church community. So when pressed with, where do you want to do 
work. Where do you want your life work to be? And immerse yourself in. Yeah, church seemed only sensible. That was the biggest factor, I think. Maybe not the biggest, but a primary factor. But that was perhaps the limits at the time, the range and boundaries of my thinking. I will be fulfilled in the church. I know and trust God is true and right and good, and the world is tasteless and dark, or tasteless and dark, and I get depressed by it. But I wonder, maybe it's not these exact words or this sort of sentiment. Nevertheless, I wonder if this is where some people's faith gets to. Maybe it is morality. Maybe it's I know what the church teaches is right and true and honorable and just. And what the world tries to teach, it's okay to murder babies. Sexuality is up for debate in all aspects. And the family might be good, but sometimes family is bad. And there's just no truth and everyone's best idea of truth. And so maybe for many, this is what you come down to it on. The church seems to offer the best explanation and framework for morality. Maybe some are drawn in by the communal aspect. And you see, the world offers community around the weirdest and dumbest ideas. We all think politically around the same, so let's make a party or a group. Or we're all, uh, you know, liberal, so let's make a party and a group. Or we all champion the rights of people to do anything to their body and to be with anyone they want to in the bedroom, so let's make a group. And I don't know, insert your cause, hobby, passion, and people make communities. But then you come to church and you sense warmth, and you sense family. And like any family, sure, there's some fighting, but for the most part, people love each other, people show grace. You're showing the pastor up here grace. He says weird things. People pray for one another. People act like families. And so maybe it's been the community, and for you, the community has defined the church. Maybe it's as simple as how to get to paradise. Maybe in the world you found no logical route to paradise. Nobody has a good set of directions. Maybe you see see a bunch of so-called self-professing non-religious people busy trying to make the world hear heaven, and they're doing a lousy job at it. And at the same time, they must be attempting to be distracted or careless or, or flat-out ignorant of the fact that their logical ends means they believe they'll die to never exist or never matter again. And you find all those other religions that say suffer and die and do nothing about it because that's your lot. And when you reincarnate, you can try again. Or work real hard to be a nice boy and maybe the deity will love you enough to give you a spot in paradise. And so you couple that with what the churches preach and you think, oh, grace, that sounds good. Christianity teaches God knows we're sinners, but he dies for us anyways, and that's how one gets to paradise. Morality, community, how to get to paradise. But all of this really lacks something. All of this really lacks something. And what strikes me out of the gate in our passage is Paul's choice of words here, that his pursuit of knowing Christ, pursuing Christ, gaining Christ, is ultimately a desire to be found in Him. That phrase and the context that Paul will continue to bring up to me moves beyond suggesting or moves beyond more than just Paul saying, I'm finding Christ to be my source of righteousness. I think there's more weight to this phrase here. 
Paul finds himself in him, in Christ. Paul finds himself and you and I find ourselves in Christ. We find ourselves. I brought up this idea of community. And that is what people want in community is identity. I am about this cause. I joined this group because I identify or with a, with a champion aspect of its gathering. And Christ cuts through all the jibber-jabber, all the superficiality. He knows what people are looking for and He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Some people devoid or doubtful of Christ, I believe they are out to find out who they are. But all it turns out is people who end up lost in themselves. Lost. They're looking for identity. I don't know. Am I a husband or am I a dad or or am I a teacher? What kind of legacy am I going to leave? If there's any legacy, what's my point for being here? Who Lost. And like a lost person in the woods, you just pick a path. All that one supposes is maybe a different scenery. Just see where the path takes you. And Christ comes along and it sounds challenging. Instead of a broad path or any path, take the narrow path. And it sounds challenging. Instead of you, lost person, trying to find your way, just lose your life for my sake. Why? Because as Paul says, when one heads the direction of Christ, one is found in Him. He says a a few verses down, not that, I think I, I don't know. (laughs) Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that, listen to this, for which Christ took hold of me. Another translation says, because Christ has made me His own. Paul's desire is to be found in Him because that's the only place people will be found. What did Christ say when He looked out among the crowds? It says, when He saw the crowds, He was moved with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Did you know that sheep without a shepherd are what? Lost. The Christian plugged into Christ is found in Him, not having my own righteousness from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God on the basis of faith. Paul is found in Him and Paul has faith in Christ. Do you hear how the ambiguous, mumbo-jumbo, complacent, opaque reasons for, oh, my faith, or I go to church, it's a moral thing, it's a community thing, it's a heaven thing, do you hear that's how that's beginning to butt heads with, with what, to use Paul's terms, what or more to the point, who has taken hold of him? Who has made him, Paul, his own? And Paul says when it comes to his life, he puts his faith in Christ. I wonder if, if you and I can appreciate this by noting what Paul is not saying. His faith is not in the right church. 
It's not in the right Bible translation. It's not in the right formulaic prayer, the right rituals upon entering into some abstract agreement with a person he's never seen. No, Paul is saying that he has faith, conviction, reliance upon, fidelity, trust, and faithfulness into Christ, the person, the Messiah. Where do you rest your hat? On Christ, the Messiah. And so one does not find themselves by submitting to a community, but rather predominantly submitting to Christ. One does not find righteousness or salvation outside of Christ. Leading up to these profound statements of Paul was a conversation around the fact that for salvation or or being declared right or restored to the original fellowship that God and man had at creation's beginning, it is not righteousness derived out of the law that saves a person. The Christian way of salvation is not Jesus plus anything. Paul has faith in Christ, not the law, not his performance. No, just in Christ. What is your faith in? This is where the esoteric discussions of how's your faith, I'm spiritual, I go to church, breaks down. I notice a lot of politics try to sell their campaigns off of have hope. We should probably ask hope in what? In your campaign? You being president? So when someone says, my faith is really struggling, we should probably ask, what's your faith in? Is it in Christ? Or is it in a church, a pastor, a Bible, a particular upbringing? Because if you ever met Christ, I don't think he ever gives me cause to waver too much. The psalmists called their faith in God like that of an immovable rock. As if we sang a song this morning for that reason. And Christ says likewise, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the torrents raged, the winds blew, and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the torrents raged, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and and great was its collapse. (laughs) Paul was met by Christ. He heard Christ. He acted acted upon Christ, and thus he had faith in Christ. And in context, Christ is faithful to be your righteousness. I'm going to allow one of these theological terms to jump out of my brain. This is justification. And just to show you that scholars and theologians don't pull these theology terms out of midair, justification or justified or justify comes from Paul. It's all over Romans. We think especially of the end of Romans 4, going into Romans 5. Paul is writing about Abraham, and what does he say? He says, because of his faith in God, Abraham didn't know God by the name of Jesus yet, but nevertheless, Moses says it was credited to Abraham 
for righteousness. He had faith in God. He got righteousness. And Paul says these words, this transaction was not written not only for Abraham, but also for us to whom righteousness will be credited for us who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our trespasses and was raised to life for our justification. Going into the next chapter, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace through God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Justification. Being declared right before God. Sins forgiven. We are guilty. We've fallen short of God's glory. That's why Paul's so adamantly against this Jesus plus thing. Because it is robbing God of glory. It's saying, what you do on the cross for my sins is not enough. I should be circumcised too. I should keep the law. I should contribute to my salvation. So among all the sins we're guilty of, saying that our feeble attempts at righteousness matters in the economy of salvation is a disgusting sin as well. We're guilty. And the way we receive righteousness is on the basis of faith, says Paul. Paul clarifies this earlier in Romans 4. He says, now the wages of the worker are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but believes in in him, notice the, the target, not just a ambiguous belief, but believes in him who justifies, there's our word again, the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Justification. Now, I'm sorry, you go to church, it's a repeat, there's a rerun on, you're hearing the gospel, I'm sorry. But I don't know about you, but Pastor Kevin, Christian all his life, Kevin, has a thick skull that just doesn't soak the gospel enough. Because I wrestle with work and with performance. And Paul is saying, I'm found in Him. I have faith in Christ. And then listen to this. He moves on to saying, because maybe he, maybe he feels like you don't realize how central Christ is in his relationship yet, but he wants to know Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. I think I may have shared this story before, so bear with me if you've heard it, but years ago, I, after I became pastor, but years ago, there was a family in the area, no longer here, but was one of those rare, original pastoral occasions, sure enough, around 9 or 10 p.m., because that's the only time people want counseling, a vehicle shows up outside of the church, and I'm already lying in bed. And if I remember right, I think Christy came in and said, hey, looks like a, a vehicle's parked over in front of the church. Sure enough, I go over, and here's this man, it's a dad I know, he Seems troubled. He doesn't attend church anywhere. I take him inside. We go downstairs because it's the middle of summer. It's brutally hot that year. And we start talking. He tells me the kids are running rampant at the house and he got in a fight with one who ended up running away. He doesn't know where that kid's at. And both he and I know this isn't the first time a kid's run away from his house. It's happened multiple times. And so he appears to be at his wit's end. He's also close in age probably to my own father. And here I am. I think I may have had an infant Calvin at the time. I don't know. But 
what do I know? So it appears to me, and I say to him, you know, your home sounds like it really, really needs redemption. Like you need to start over. You, you need something to just kind of wash away the bad things going on, something to redeem it. And of course, I happen to know a redeemer. And so I try to introduce Jesus into the equation because that's the sorely lacking thing I noticed. And he kind of dismissively, doesn't out and out stop me, but he just kind of dismisses the conversation, says he's been down that trail. And he says, I have a faith. (laughs) I don't know the terms he used exactly, but it fits real nice into this ambiguous I have a faith category I opened with. Certainly he didn't say he goes to church, but he's spiritual. And he kind of shrugs it off. He kind of states, well, I hoped that, you know, you could have or would have stated something that might have been of service. You know how it is. You talk to a lot of people and it seems like one person might say something that causes you to realize something or that could change the situation. So thanks anyway. And he retreats to his truck and he drives off. Now, I hope I'm not usually proud or confident, but I think to myself, I think I did say something in that situation that could change it all. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. See, Paul knows a power, that Greek word is where we get dynamite, and that comes from Christ. An active, living strength and ability forced to reckon with power. And when it comes to resurrection, power is also can mean Efficacy, it's efficacious, it, it works, resurrection. Christ's power is the only power that will bring redemption and resurrection to your life and mine. And the fellowship of his sufferings, Paul says. Can you believe that? Like, this is how I know that what Paul is talking about is not a, yeah, I have faith, right? Or I want to go to church, I want to be spiritual. No, Paul is focused not on an ambiguous faith. This church, I'm spiritual. No, he's centered on the man, Christ, the one who made Paul his own, the one whom Paul has faith in, the one whom Paul wants to continually know by way of the resurrection power, but also in by way of fellowship of his sufferings. Said this a few weeks ago that, you know, Muslims have Mecca, Maybe the Americans might say we have Plymouth Rock or, you know, whatever, Gettysburg. Go to some place and try to capture the emotion or the sense or the, the, the holy geography, if you will, of something in the past. Now, many Christians, of course, do claim and do travel to the Holy Land. But Christ has made suffering his meeting place. Unlike any other religion, Christ has brought meaning and purpose and value and deep personal significance to suffering. Christ is God calling us to believe in Him. And unlike Muhammad or any other religious founder or so-called deity, only Yahweh has become flesh and suffered for us. And says, now when you do what I did, suffer, you will know that I am with you. Because you will know that I went before you. The author of Hebrews, many suspect Paul or someone close to him, writes, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, 
He is able to help those who are being tested. You serve a Savior and Lord and deity who suffered. And He grants His followers to suffer. And by suffering, the writers say He sympathizes with us, but perhaps the opposite is true as well. We can begin to identify and sympathize with Him. He suffered. I'm suffering. This is a taste of what my Savior did for me out of love. This is what Paul wants to know. He wants to know Christ more, and he will begin to know Christ more when he suffers like Christ. I don't think that has anything to do with my faith. I'm spiritual. I want to go to church. No, I feel like Paul is echoing Moses, who just flat out says, show me yourself. That's what I'm interested in. But it goes further. Paul wants to do more than find himself in him. He wants to have more than faith in him. He wants to go beyond knowing him. He wants to be conformed to him. Conformed to him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. This word conformed, it's the only time used in the New Testament period in the original language, the original Greek. You can see two words that look familiar. You can see two words put together. The the makings of the word symmetry and the makings of the word morph. Paul wants to be morphed into symmetry of Christ's death. Does Paul have a death wish? No. Paul has a resurrection and redemption wish. The paradox of Christ's death is that it brought life. It brought redemption. Christ died... And it had meaning, and today you and I are talking about it. And in the same way, Paul says he wants to know Christ's suffering and he wants his death to be like Christ because he knows if it's like Christ, it will count. It will be redeemed by God's grace to redeem others. And you know what? Paul's life counted. His suffering counted. After Jesus, Paul planted the church in many places, and when he died, his life counted. But that's not what Paul was after. You know, Paul was not after fame, fortune, or legacy. He was after Christ. Even in this last statement, in his desires to attain the resurrection from the dead, I don't want you to hear that in a vacuum. And I don't want you to hear that in a selfish way. I think a lot of people hear it this way. Somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. So, in order that I might live forever, I might get my fat safely out of the fires of hell. That is not how Paul means it. And if you think that's the end of a Christian's desire is to serve God, simply to be spared hell and live forever, i got to tell you, our aim is a whole lot better than that. Our aim is a whole lot more selfless and grander than that. That aim... Living forever and not frying in hell. If that is all that one aims for, it's like being at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you are so overwhelmed with comfort at the fact that you're in a car 20 yards back away from the cliff. Look at how safe we are. And you miss out on the view of the Grand Canyon. Paul wants to attain the resurrection of the dead for what reason? He says this only a few verses later in verse 14. He says the goal is to win the price prize of God in Christ Jesus. It's more Jesus. He's like obsessed with Jesus, isn't he? The point of resurrecting from the dead is to be in his presence, to be near him. 
is to realize what David said in Psalm 1611, that there are eternal pleasures at God's right hand. You know what eternal means? It never goes out. It's always satisfying. It's always pleasurable. It's almost like Paul loves Jesus or something. It's like for Paul, it's as if he resolved to know nothing among his hearers except Jesus Christ. He's not interested in, oh, I have a strong faith. Or he's not saying, oh, I'm struggling in my faith. He's not asking if people go to church. Do you go to church? He's not telling people, yeah, I go to church. He's not even hip and trendy and say, I don't go to church. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. How cute. No, his focus is to be found in him. He has faith in Christ. He wants to know Christ and to be conformed to him. So here's what I want this to mean for us, for you today, straight out of the mouth of the pastor behind the pulpit. Church buildings and communities will come and go, live and die. Pastors will live and die. Faith traditions will have good things to be treasured about. Good Bible translations exist out there. Bad Bible translations should be held in suspicion. There are good hymns and even good spiritual songs, and there are not so good ones. And the world is dark. And inside the church, capital C, referring to its people, it's light and good and warm and wholesome. But at the end of the day, the preeminent truth that you and I need to rest on, the solid rock where the power resides in not one thing or one place, but in one real person, Jesus Christ. He is the only place where you and I will be found. He's the only one who deserves our unfledgling faith. He's literally a lifelong pursuit that deserves our knowing. And to Him, you and I should seek to be conformed to. Amen? Let's let's pray. Father, I grew up in a church, church family that's still near and dear to my heart. I've been serving in a church for almost a decade that's really near and dear to my heart. But Father, let the person of Christ Jesus be the nearest and dearest thing to my heart. Let Christ Jesus reign supreme in all of my affections. Father, I want to be found in You. In fact, I am found in You. Father, my faith is in nothing else but Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Father, I want to be conformed to You. I want to know You more so that I might die and resurrect and be with You in Your presence. Because You are that satisfying. You are that desirable. Father, You are worthy of all admiration and adoration and praise. So Father, if some of us have gone off the path a little bit, if we've miscalculated what deserves our true affections, would You put us back on the right path? Help us not to take faith or stock in our morality. Not saying morality is bad, but help us to take stock and admiration in you. Because as we draw closer to you, you are able to purify those who all draw close to you. So help us, Father, to have the sort of faith and affection that Paul had for you. We love you, Jesus, and we ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.